Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Welcome back, you guys. Hi. We are diving right into our part two. I know we've been doing a lot of part one, part two. Hopefully these have been like good cliffhangers. That <laughs> You have one cliffhanger and you're like, what is... So last week we talked a lot about service dogs, the difference between service dogs and emotional support and the context of service dogs allowing access to facilities. So part of the reason why it's allowed is that an individual without this support wouldn't be able to access a certain environment because they need the specific skill that that service animal has. So in the context of the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, that's where we're starting, right? That we are giving access to individuals who have a disability to make sure that they have that opportunity to access that place. So We talked a lot about facilities. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more about that access component within the school. And I know that we've touched on this before in the past, access in general, physical access, all of that. Yeah. And we had talked about step one is having the dog be put into the IEP for the child. So we had kind of talked around about about, but that as more so not necessarily a service. The dog isn't a service that the school is providing. It's the parents having the dog under the accommodation. Mm -hmm. It's the accommodation that the dog is allowed. Now, technically, if it's a certified service dog, it shouldn't even need to be in the IEP. You could have individuals that don't have IEPs that have it, not even 504 plans, because of the laws, ADA, allowing for public places, schools are public places. Now, just like everything else, things are a little bit better if everyone is aware of what's going on. So if you're able to put it in the IEP, it's a lot easier. Right, especially because public places do not include a classroom. Now, parts of a school are public places. But anyway, the Supreme Court case that we're talking about involved a little girl. It's called Fry versus Napoleon Community Schools. Yes. And this was in Michigan. There was a 13-year-old girl. She had cerebral palsy. And she had been with a lot of these Supreme Court cases. By the time the Supreme Court gets to it, they've been battling the school district for years, right? So she had a golden doodle named Wonder. And she was kind of entrenched in this battle with the school to bring her service dog. So obviously, the last episode, we talked about the differences between just what an emotional support animal is and then what that service dog. So Wonder was a dog that was specifically trained to help this little girl through her life with specific tasks. And the district had argued that, hey, we can have an aide do all of that, do those same supports, right? But the argument is that is very restrictive, having an aide do something that if the child is able to do it with the use of the service dog, she is independent. 
what they tried to analogize was that, well, she's not independent because the dog's doing it for her. But, you know, realize is that when we're trying, the purpose of education is to get the child to be able to be an independent member of society once they're exiting school, right? And so you can be an adult with service dog, right? But you're not going to have that aid. So it is independent. Right. And this was, you know, she started kindergarten. She had, you know, severe mobility problems. And Wonder was specifically trained to like open doors, right? Pick up things, but really give the little girl some form of independence, even as a kindergartner, right? Whereas what Amanda was saying, like an aide wouldn't necessarily do that. Like you're not going to have somebody follow you around and open doors for you, you know, your whole life. And that was the purpose of having the dog so that she could learn that. Because it wasn't that she couldn't eventually learn that. It was just, she was so little. She was a kindergartner, right? With those severe mobility. And her needs changed over time, but she still, because of her disabilities, required the support of a service dog. And so, you know, the Supreme Court does not just look at cases like this and then they make, oh, she's allowed to have her dog. That's not the point of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court finds cases that different states across the nation, courts, the appeals courts, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, when they're all kind of fighting, not really fighting, they have differing uh, opinions, right? That's when we get to the Supreme Court so that we get a lay of the land. So Fry, if you say it to a special education attorney, they're not necessarily like, oh yeah, that's the dog service case. They're more interested in the procedural application and, and consequence of Fry. So we have a couple of clips, but just to kind of set it up, essentially at the end of Fry, the focus was not oh, is she allowed to have a dog because under the Individuals Disability Education Act, she's allowed certain accommodations. It wasn't about that. It was more so about, okay, if I'm the attorney for the student, am I allowed to bring this because there's 88 issues that are outside of the Individuals Disability Education Act? I don't want to go through the administrative law procedure, which we're very familiar with. We just want to go straight to the court. We just want to go not administrative law court. We want to go straight to a superior courthouse or a court of appeals. And the reason why this gets so conflicted is because in other areas of law, there's one way to approach a case. So personal injury, you know, you're filing a case against an individual, right? In family law, you're doing it in family court. In the area of education law, there are a number of different laws, both federal and state laws, that give protection. So we've talked a lot about the Individual Disabilities Education Act, the IDEA, and the protections of a free, appropriate public education, a FAPE. We've also talked about access and prohibition of discrimination under the ADA. Now, where things come into conflict and make it more complicated is where you have an issue that possibly could be seen as a violation under the IDEA, but also as a violation under the ADA. The IDEA claims are filed in administrative court based on how Congress set it up, whereas the ADA is a federal, now they're both federal laws, but Congress specifically wanted it to be a more informal process for families to be able to adjudicate on their own. So they said states you are able to choose the procedures of how these cases be brought about. So each state has their own methodology, own process. So in California, we have the Office of Administrative Hearings. The ADA, however, is different. The ADA is a federal law where Congress did not say states you can have your own adjudicated procedure. 
they are federal claims that have to be adjudicated in federal court. So you're getting a case as an attorney or you as a parent have an issue that happened. You have a violation. The school is not allowing your child to bring their service dog. Where do you file your complaint? Do you file it in administrative law? Do you file it in federal? In this case, they wanted to file in federal because there are some damages, emotional support damages, money damages that you cannot get under the IDEA. We've talked about that a lot. You can't get money under the IDEA. So they didn't want to file under the IDEA. They wanted to file in federal court. But the school district challenged the jurisdiction of the federal court, basically saying you have to exhaust, do what's called exhaustion of administrative remedies, going through the IDEA procedure first. So this is where the Supreme Court is making a determination as to is exhaustion required and when is it. And oral arguments for the Supreme Court case are readily made available to the public. We actually have a clip from YouTube where the attorney for the child is kind of explaining his position. So we're going to take a quick listen. Take a listen. You'd be making two arguments. One is that you don't have to exhaust because you're asking for damages and those aren't available under the IDEA. And the second one is you don't have to exhaust because you're not complaining about the fair and appropriate public education provision. Are those separate arguments or are do you have to satisfy both of them? No, I think they're independent arguments, Mr. Chief Justice. So I think the fact that we are seeking emotional distress damages and those damages, as the Sixth Circuit recognized, are not available under the IDEA is fully sufficient for us to prevail here to say that exhaustion was not required. So if that's the case, why I would suspect that the denial of what is sought under the IDEA for a fair and appropriate public education is something that could well cause emotional distress in most cases. And so is all you're saying is that you have to tack on to an IDEA claim, a claim for damages for emotional distress, and then you don't have to exhaust. And so whenever a school district denies an element of an FAPA or a proposed element, they will always face two-track litigation. I don't think that that's right, Your Honor, because it's not the case that every time there's a denial of a free appropriate public education under the IDEA, there's also going to be a violation of the ADA. So that was Chief Justice Roberts questioning the attorney for the child, right? And kind of just how Amanda had explained it. Like the argument was not oh, it's totally emotional distress every time we have to deal with anything that the school district does or does not do. So we're just going to tack that on. He point blank, you know, told Justice Roberts, no, that's not the case here. And just to kind of clarify, so there is a statute from Congress that says if the remedies you're seeking of an ADA or Section 504 violation is a remedy that you could get under a denial of FAPE, you must exhaust administrative remedies. This is the statute that we're fighting over because what's basically having to be determined is what are the circumstances where the remedy is available? Because things get really convoluted, right? You could say that this case solely deals with access, but someone could argue yeah, but access, you're not accessing, you're not making good progress. So if she's not at school, not making progress, it's a denial of faith, right? So there's a lot of crossover in the argument. So where they've kind of come about and where the Supreme Court landed was that rather than looking towards the violations overlapping, per se, if you look at how it's complained in your complaint, what your remedies you're seeking and the remedy that you're seeking cannot be sought in administrative remedies, that's when you don't have to exhaust. 
So Justin Kagan actually wrote the opinion of the court. And before we get into a couple great examples that she points out, we have her line of questioning. Yeah. Another clip. They work in that case as opposed to this one. That's because 1415 is a unique exhaustion statute geared to the school setting. It's a carefully calibrated situation where the IDEA Congress... But this goes back to Justice Ginsburg's point. I mean, the entire point of the statute and the overruling of our prior case was Congress saying the fact that the IDEA exists for schools does not mean that you don't have separate ADA and Rehabilitation Act claims. And if you bring those separate kind of claims, which are essentially denial of access claims to public facilities, and then you're asking in addition to that for a form of damages that has nothing to do with what any IDEA officer can provide, then you can go forward without exhaustion. That, that's exactly right in, ter- in terms of explaining the first half of 1415. It doesn't explain the second half, the timing provisions of 1415. And to, to understand this, it's, one nice way of doing it is to just look at the government's brief that they filed in pain, and this was going back to your question about Jones and Bach. A money damages suit, the government told the Ninth Circuit that a money damages suit would not go forward because implicit in it is a declaration that there is an IDEA violation. So if Mr. Martinez said in response before, if the complaint only sought emotional distress money damages, could that suit go forward? In pain, the government said the reverse. And the reason for that is that when a federal court awards money damages, the first thing it is doing is issuing a declaration that the underlying problem was a violation in some way or another. So if you accepted EF's complaint here, what you'd be doing is accepting the idea, ordering a declaratory judgment. I see, I see. School- no, this, this is what. Okay, that was a little bit more than what I prepared for, but we got a little distracted. Yeah. So if you guys ever look up some of these oral arguments, there are was this created by it started with last week tonight's john oliver mm-hmm. um, he created dogs of the supreme court if you have not seen this ever before in your life please go google it basically it's the video of these oral arguments being dubbed to dogs dressed up as the justices and the attorneys it's and this very is what we've cute. been watching so i know it's, it's very cute and i mean very on the nose right for this case so in her opinion kagan actually offered two examples and this might help clarify what this last clip was about so i mean and i use this example i mean obviously before but when we're trying to explain that denial of access so let's say you have a child who uses a wheelchair and you sue the school for discrimination because the building doesn't have access ramps okay that can easily be brought up against a library, a theater, and that just, it all hinges on the quality of access, right, to those public facilities, not whether a school's special education program is adequate. So then that second example that she brings up is, okay, a student with a learning disability who sues the district for failing to provide math tutoring. That essence of that lawsuit is, you know, did the school offer an adequate education or a free appropriate public education. So then she wraps that around and goes, look, there's nothing in Fry's lawsuit where there's a focus on the adequacy of her education. It's just about her right to bring her service dog to school, regardless of the alternatives that the school had provided. And so, yes, the aid is a service within the IEP, but the attorneys for the student were not arguing that those aides were inadequate. Therefore, she was denied a FAPE. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do everything with it was about her bringing her dog to school and allowing that 
access to that public facility, I suppose. Yeah. So it is different. Obviously, a school is different than a theater or anything like that, but it's still at the heart of it is talking about the quality of access, which we have to make a distinction of all the time. Right. And it comes down to the idea of this area of law does end up getting very convoluted and complicated. And that's why, you know, we try as much as we can to break down the law for you guys to kind of get tidbits here and there to be able to guide you through this process that Congress felt could be done by parents alone. And it's not to say that parents can't do it. It's that what they're fighting up against is the reality of these school districts hire attorneys from big law firms that have a lot of resources. So it is a lot more difficult than what we would hope. So it's a situation where understanding that the complexities of the fact that we have federal laws and state laws and some federal laws that are governed by different courts than the other federal laws, it does complicate things a little bit when you have claims that are dealing with education, but whether or not it's more of that access and the discrimination side versus the appropriateness of the education is is where some Sometimes we have to go in one direction or another. So if you're deciding whether you want to consult an attorney for an issue, that is something that you would need to consider about, you know, whether or not it's something that would go to federal court or would go to Office of Administrative Hearings here in California. And so, you know, things to kind of take into consideration when you are looking for your student to have their service dog is obviously to try and speak to the school beforehand, try to do an assistance plan. Like the child should be able to take responsibility for the dog and certain things like that. They have to accommodate change their own policies, the district, and things like that. The ADA in general indicates that fears of dogs or allergies of dogs are not valid reasons for refusing a service dog to enter a premises. Mm -hmm. Now... It might be a little different in a classroom, you know, that it's a case by case. So so even though this was, you know, a great kind of starting point and a lot of the people on our side felt that this was opening the door for a lot of individuals' disabilities to kind of fight back, there is still a possibility of a different outcome. It's a case by case. Right kind of analysis. And so that's why we're still seeing kind of the ramifications. This was in 2017. So although it was a big win, we're just now seeing how this is being used, how the lower courts, and I've said this before with the administration, having a very conservative bench and that being affected for many years to come, you know, time will only tell. And, you know, we try to be on the front line and be as collaborative as possible, you know, Going to a lawsuit, it should be the last thing that any parent wants to do against a school district. Some of these obviously have to move forward, but, you know, that's what we try to do when trying to get these service dogs into school districts. Right. And where this comes into play just across the board, whether it's a service dog case or any other cases that there is limited remedies that can be provided by the IDEA and you as a parent should have a right to seek the remedies that are appropriate. And this, it, without Fry, there was a lot of requirements to go through administrative procedures, which prolongs the process to get the remedies that you're actually seeking. So yeah, this allows you to go straight. By the time court. that like they had this done, like she started in kindergarten and then she was 13, like she wasn't even using, excuse me, the dog as much because like, she became like independent. But this is what we see with a lot of these cases that need to be taken all the way because like I said, the Supreme Court wasn't like, yes, allow her to have her dog. That's not right. the purpose of the Supreme right. Court. It's just to say, hey, this is the standard or this is how you need to review this now and I'm going to kick it down because it's a case by case determination and especially with the Individuals Disability Education Act it's individuals right you have an individualized education 
program. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to point out, you had heard he had said a fair and appropriate. Um, I think that was a throwback to the Handicap Act, the Mm -hmm. original formation of the IDEA, because you know that we always say it and under the Individual Disability Education Act, it's many amendments. It's a free and appropriate, not fair. (laughs) But I thought, I was like, oh, that was interesting. I know. I was like, why do you say that? And then I was like, oh, gosh, like he's probably like thinking of the like first iteration of it, which was in the 70s. If you ever want to go and listen to Supreme Court oral arguments, because I, I, it was actually in law school when the same-sex marriage cases came out, and I listened to oral arguments. And look, if you're not an attorney or a law student, sometimes like legal arguments can become dull. If you ever want to like hear the arguments, but you don't want to be bored, do the dogs of the Supreme Court videos <laughs> because it's way more entertaining. I can tell you that to see the dogs dressed up and moving around. It's nice because they also have closed captioning and sometimes it's easier to kind of read what is happening. And here at the same time, I know that I'm definitely a fan. I'm a multi-sensory learner Mm -hmm. and I need all of that. But yeah, if you want to get through it and laugh a little bit, they have like so many different dogs. Like you have to see like there. And then they have this like chicken that's like the court reporter. Oh, like the stronographer. And then there's like a duck. There's like a duck. Yeah. I think it's like the clerk of the court. Anyway, it's so funny. But now that you've heard this episode, there will have been pictures posted on our Facebook and Instagram of Liam. So if you've been hearing us talk about him and you want to see a picture of him, we posted a picture at his training, a um, little stoic picture. So you can take a look at that and make sure if you haven't already followed us or liked us on Facebook or Instagram, please do so. Right. <laughs> and we will talk to you next week. Yeah. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.